The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Thousands of California's farmers with fields located near schools will be facing new pesticide spraying regulations beginning in January. We have the details. USDA Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue visited Modesto last week. He held an open forum with California's farmers. We'll tell you what he heard and what he said. Twin tunnels or a single tunnel? The California Water Fix Project is in a state of uncertainty, but often overlooked in this battle in the Delta is the effect it would have on the surrounding farmland that would be used by the state to divert that water from the Sacramento River. We have a report from Cortland. As harvest season wraps up, we hear from area farmers about what they're doing this time of year. We have all that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The California Department of Pesticide Regulation has adopted new rules to further protect young students from pesticide exposure. The rules take effect on January 1st of 2018, and they'll regulate the use of agricultural pesticides near schools as well as licensed child daycare facilities. The rule impacts about 4,100 schools and daycare facilities, as well as about 2,500 growers here in California. The new regulation prohibits many pesticide applications within a quarter mile of schools and daycare facilities during school hours, Monday through Friday, between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. This includes all applications by aircraft, sprinklers, air blast sprayers, and all fumigant applications. In addition, most dust and powder pesticide applications, such as sulfur, will also be prohibited during that time frame. The new rule also requires California growers to provide annual notification to schools and daycare facilities, as well as county ag commissioners, of the pesticides expected to be used within a quarter mile of those schools and facilities in the upcoming year. There has been some pushback from ag industry leaders. The Capitol Press reports that Laura Brown, the Director of Governmental Affairs for California Citrus Mutual, says the rule isn't based on sound science and that it places an undue burden on schools to notify parents when there's even a potential that pesticides could be used in the area. Bill Bird is the executive director of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau Federation. He says the farmers here in Sacramento, they're all for this regulation, but they would like to be more involved in the planning process where these rural schools are located. Our growers uh, and ranchers, Fred, are in the business of feeding children, not poisoning children. And I want to make that point very clear. Uh, Most of our growers have absolutely no problem with this whatsoever. However, uh, at the same time, Uh, They do also want to work with school districts. When it comes time to build a new school, they want to be able to work with those school districts to make sure the school doesn't go into areas that have been historically used for agriculture. Farm groups, though, did get some concessions from the Department of Pesticide Regulation when these rules were proposed earlier this year. The current regulations are watered down from DPR's original proposal of a one-mile pesticide restriction zone, as well as 48 hours notice to schools of upcoming spray applications. It's now a quarter mile from the school and an annual notification to the school. And as far as notifying the parents, parental notification is now at the discretion of each school. Agriculture Department analysts had been predicting that in fiscal year 2017, which ended September 30th, the U.S. would export $139.8 billion worth of ag products. And it clocked in at 
140.5. Oh, but in this case, you know, I guess you analysts don't mind being wrong. Yeah, that's correct. Uh-huh. <laughs> USDA trade analyst Bryce Cook. So exports did do better than expected, coming in $10.9 billion or 8% higher than 2016. The ag trade surplus, 28% higher, mostly because of gains in bulk commodity exports. Wheat was up 21% in value terms. Soybeans was up 17% and corn was up 6%. Cotton, the big winner, though, up 70% in value, 50% in volume. Now, why did U.S. exports do so well? The dollar is still generally weak, and you have had pretty decent income growth in developing countries. Those are a growing percent of where U.S. goods are sold. And Cook says the U.S. had plenty of good quality product to sell. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. California Water Fix. That's the official name for the Delta Tunnels Project. It would move water from the Sacramento River in western Sacramento County and the surrounding areas via two tunnels down to the existing state pumping plants near Tracy. From there, it goes to the farms and cities of central and southern California. As you might imagine, it's not a cheap venture to construct two 40-foot-long tunnels in the Delta. $17 billion is the early estimate on the costs. Many Southern California water agencies, uh, with the exception of the Mammoth Metropolitan Water Agency, are balking at helping to pay for that project. As a result, modifications have been proposed to help lower the eventual cost. The most prominent of those proposals is modifying the project to include only one tunnel, not two. But while much of the attention has been on how the tunnels would affect water flows in the area, salinity levels in the Delta, as well as fish populations, there's concern in Delta area towns near Cortland about the three proposed diversion points. Those are vast areas of Delta land that would become bypasses for Sacramento River water in order to get it to the initial tunnel pumps that would send the water south through the tunnels. Currently, it's lush farmland, and those three diversion points would alter the landscape dramatically, ending farming operations on that land for possibly decades. Cortland farmer Russ Van Lobensels told the Sacramento Bee about the impacts of those diversion points on area farmers. Behind me is diversion point three. In the forefront is cherries, and behind that is a grape vineyard. Again, there'll be 40 acres of raised ground, uh, hundreds of thousands of cubic yards of material hauled in. DWR sent us all, uh, or sent hundreds of landowners, uh, temporary entry permits, which would have allowed them to come on the property and do all kinds of different uh, uh, activities. Um, that was fought and eventually uh, 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 the growers won and uh, DWR wasn't able to do what they wanted to do. But they will, uh, they will condemn parts of the property. That which they need for the diversion site itself and for the tunnel facility uh, will, have, will be uh, condemned and, and, and used by them. The balance, which is a great deal of it, I anticipate that they will, um, they will uh, take for a 10-year period, uh, use it, and then try to give it back to us and say, now go, go farm on it again. The Sacramento Bee reports that the one tunnel plan gained momentum in October when the Santa Clara Valley Water District rejected the twin tunnels and voted instead to offer conditional support for that less expensive single tunnel plan.
The USDA Animal Plant Health and Inspection Service Monday announced the withdrawal of biotech regulations proposed at the end of the Obama administration to get more stakeholder input. AFBF Congressional Relations Director Andrew Walmsley says the move brings an opportunity to improve the rule. We're supportive of what USDA did to push pause and make another commitment to engage with stakeholders to improve the rules, to make sure we have an environment that's friendly to innovation while also respecting the needs of our international customers before we come to a final resolution on any new regulation going forward. Walmsley explains the concerns of the agriculture industry of the now withdrawn proposal. There were some positives, especially how USDA was viewing new breeding techniques such as genome editing, but there was also some concerns on how traditional biotechnology production practices might be regulated in the future and what that means for innovation and research and development. So this provides an opportunity for USDA to make sure we've got the best regulatory program and policy for new breeding techniques, for biotechnology and innovation in general for agriculture. He expects USDA will reveal more information on the plan moving forward later this month. They've got a meeting coming up on November 15th just outside of Washington, D.C. that allows folks to come and visit with the agency and I think they wanted to pull this rule back so they could engage. So I think that's the first chance that they can communicate with the public about next steps the next ideas, and then we'll see whatever process they set forward, but we expect a public comment period and plenty of opportunities to give that feedback to the agency. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. The rice harvest is nearing completion. Cotton continues to be harvested for lint and seed. Farmers are expecting a decent yield. Alfalfa fields are still going strong and continue to be irrigated, cut, and baled. Corn and sedan grass for silage is being cut and chopped. Black-eyed beans were being harvested and processed. Most summer crops have been harvested. Fields are being prepped for winter planting. Winter wheat was being planted. The apple harvest has been completed. Wine grape harvest is almost complete. Plums and cold storage were being packed and exported to foreign markets. Pruning has started in some stone fruit orchards. Some old orchards are being removed and prepared for replanting. Quince, pomegranates, kiwi fruit, and some persimmons are being packed and exported for foreign and domestic marketplaces. Persimmon harvest is well underway with the cooler weather helping external color. Thompson seedless grapes are being rolled and picked up for raisins. Table grape harvest is nearing completion. Grapes are being exported to foreign markets. Naval oranges are being picked and tested for maturity. Citrus orchards are being skirted and trimmed for the coming season. Melagold grapefruit, lemons, and limes are being harvested. And the olive harvest is nearing completion. The almond harvest is complete with orchard pruning being done and planting of new orchards ongoing. Walnuts and pistachio nuts continue to be harvested and exported. On the vegetable fields, squash, carrots, asparagus, cauliflower, tomatoes, yams, turnips, and fall vegetables are in season. Onion planting is ongoing. Yellow bell peppers and green chili peppers are being harvested and yields are described as being adequate. Weed control in carrot fields is ongoing. In Monterey County, many late-season lettuces, broccoli, and cauliflower were growing. Strawberry fields are being planted and prepped for next year's production. In San Joaquin County, the cantaloupe harvest has neared completion. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland forage was primarily in poor to very poor condition. Despite the first rains of the season, more precipitation will be needed before the grasses will germinate and rangelands will be flush with new green. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Cattle were moved down from higher elevation ranges. Sheep continue to graze on harvested grain fields. 
Let's hear from some Northern California farmers about what they've been up to recently. First up, down in San Joaquin County, is high-density olive grower Josh Barton. He told the California Farm Bureau Federation about harvesting his Arbiquina olives to make extra virgin olive oil. Hi, my name is Josh Barton with Barton Ranch. We're out here in Farmington in San Joaquin County, and it's Arbiquina Olive Harvest 2017. What we've got here is we've got an oxbow harvester positioned ready to uh, get in and start picking some olives. Uh, so far from what we've seen this year, the production has been really good. Uh, we're really happy with uh, the quality that we're picking off of the trees. Uh, the conditions have been perfect. We haven't had any precipitation, so the ground has been uh, easy to cross and uh, the trees have been picking pretty well. Uh, if, you, if you take a look at the machine, you'll see that we're ready to get get going here and uh, what we're looking for now is uh, to, to remove as much of the fruit as we possibly can. So in order to do that we'll make some adjustments on the machine, try to maybe slow things down a little bit and, uh, and cover as much ground as we can so that we can continue to put out a good product and uh, accrue some good California extra virgin olive oil. Here's Sacramento Valley rice grower Josh Shepard. He tells Rice News about the challenges of this year's rice harvest and how he's preparing for 2018. This year was uh, a lot of work. We had some, some challenging field conditions there when it comes to the harvest, and we just had to press on and uh, get through it. Fortunately, we uh, reached the finish line without any uh, major uh, equipment failures. We're in the process now of, of tearing all this down. Uh, we're gonna rebuild all the consumables, the, the knives, uh, the wear items that, uh, that do the thrashing inside the combine are all gonna be replaced and uh, we're gonna put all this equipment away uh, ready for next year. And so uh, the season is uh, ended this year, but we're already beginning uh, making progress towards uh, the rice crop for 2018. Let's go out to the farmer's market in Auburn, where Bob from Snow Citrus told Placer Grown all about limes and pomegranates that are being harvested now. One of the things we're starting to harvest right now is our beautiful bear's limes. First of the season, most people don't realize that a lime when it's fully ripe, gets yellow like a lemon right before it falls off the tree. The flavor is still really intense. You still get that strong lime flavor, but they, uh, the season for them here locally is short. So come on down to the market and get some of these. Good on your fish, good on your fresh cocktails. Since the citrus here isn't waxed, the best way you can store them is in a basket on the counter. Citrus needs to breathe. The peel needs to is porous, and if you put it in the refrigerator, it'll soak up all that moisture that's in the refrigerator and has a tendency to degrade really fast. People leave their citrus in a basket on the counter, and if it seems like the skin is drying out, then put it in the refrigerator. Um, hopefully you consume it faster than that, though. Um, the other thing we just started to harvest is our pomegranates. We grow a really, really early variety of the Wonderful. This is, most people would know it as the Wonderful nowadays. We're not sure what the variety is. But one of the things people always ask is what to look for in a ripe pomegranate. One of the things you want to look for in a ripe pomegranate is not necessarily the color. The color on the outside really does, is not an indicator of the maturity. One of the things we tell people is you look for flat spots. The flat spots on the fruit, when you look at next to the flat spot, there will be ridges on either side. And those ridges are from the kernels inside swelling with sugar and pushing their way through the peel. So if you see a pomegranate that's got cracks forming on the outside in the peel, it's a really good indicator of maturity. It's a good indicator that this pomegranate is ready to eat. 
The other thing you want to do with pomegranates is when you get them home and they're cracked, you do not want to put them in the refrigerator. You want to leave them in a basket on the counter too so they can breathe. If the skin starts to dry out, break it apart, put the kernels in a Ziploc bag, put them in a Tupperware dish, put them in the refrigerator. They'll hold for a while, quite a while. So, you know, just pick it up, feel it, look for the flat spots. You're good to go. Once again, you can stop by the Auburn Farmer's Market here on Saturday. You can check us out at snowcitrus.com. Check out placergrown.org. Thank you. Also at the Auburn Farmer's Market, Placer Grown learned from Billy Jean Sal of Sal Orchards in Wheatland on how to properly crack a walnut. Hi, I'm Billy Jean Sal with Sal Orchards and I'm gonna give you a tip on cracking walnuts. The new crop is just in and they're very fresh, awesome this year, beautiful, but there's a very easy way to crack. So here's your seam on the walnut. You do not want to hit the seam. You'll break the shoulders off. So you hit in between the seam, very simple, and then they pop open beautiful halves. Very tasty, very healthy. They will store in the freezer for two months or in the refrigerator for about nine months. So if you'd like to come out to the farmer's market or to the farm stand, we'd be born happy to show you the trees that they've been shook off of and let you have a sample. Finally, the California Farm Bureau Federation talked with Napa County wine grape grower Jim Ragusi about the effects of the recent wine country wildfires on his vines. I've been through fires before where we'll burn back and we'll burn the trunks and they seem they'll come back. But where anything um, where the fire sat and got really hot, it will see an or following year, you'll see bud development will, will be impaired. And then if you go the following year, we'll see if they pull out of it. So you got a two-year process here. You can kind of see where these, um, where the areas where the fire was really hot, those vines there, there's no reason to wait two years. We plant everything with a one-year fallow. So we'll pull a vineyard, leave it fallow for one year, and then plant it the following, then four years from that, we'll get the first crop. And normally the first crop is a decent, it's a good, it's a decent quality crop. Then the vineyard, the second, third year, it kind of adjusts and the quality bounces around. It takes about the um, sixth, seventh year adjusts for quality. And I've had years where I've been 50% off of a crop. It's nature. That's what farming is. So this, this one here is just a little different. It's nature threw a fire at us. I mean, we lost some grapevines. A lot of people lost their homes and lives. So, I mean, we're pretty much, we came through this thing without anything hurting us. There's a lot of people worse off than we are right now in this, in this valley and then Sonoma and Santa Rosa. We listen everywhere we go. Uh, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue talking with reporters in Modesto, California this weekend after having town hall meetings with farmers in that state. One big item producers brought up the need to boost exports of crops like California almonds. We understand that trade is a need. 70% of these California almonds are consumed by people outside of the country. We've got to do more. We've got to do more to break down the protectionism that we see uh, around the world. Uh, we're working every day in sales around the world to do that. Growers in California also brought up the problems with the lack of a reliable supply of farm workers. We're looking at a program that could give us a legal agricultural workforce that farmers could feel comfortable and their employees could be, feel comfortable about. And Purdue said his department's also working on another farmer concern, and that's too many restrictive and expensive regulations. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. There is a comment missing from that USDA report from Sonny Purdue, who talked to farmers last Sunday in Modesto. It had to do with NAFTA. 
Donald Trump has worried some farmers with his proposal to redo the North America Free Trade Agreement, which has boosted agricultural exports to Mexico and Canada, much to the benefit of California's farmers. A couple of farmers brought that up with Purdue, talking about the increase in almond exports, as well as dairy exports, which have increased. Purdue told the farmers that he's tried to show Trump the importance of NAFTA. He added that his boss is very bombastic sometimes on things that he believes, but he also has the essence of a good leader who's willing to listen. Purdue talked to reporters after he addressed the farmers. He began by answering a question from a reporter, what's in the national farm bill that would benefit California's farmers? This is a uh, farm bill will be for all states, and uh, I think where there may be some paranoia about we don't ever share, uh, I do believe California is very well represented in the Ag Bill uh, considerations. Uh, uh, they're not uh, chairs right now, but uh, only uh, only two or three states can have the chairman of the committee. So uh, I think agriculture has a, has a significant part here in California to play in its diversification, in its size, in its impact, in its exports, and uh, obviously in the amount of uh, leafy vegetables that we, uh, we consume across the country. Yeah, we, we heard some of those issues issues today. So, what what do you take away from this this meeting today? Well, again, we listen everywhere we go. We we understand that trade is uh, is a need. Uh, almonds are seventy percent of these California almonds uh, are consumed by people outside of the country. We've got to do more. We've got to do more to break down the protectionism that we see uh, around the world. Uh, we're working every day and and uh, sales around the world to do that. Labor can continues to be an issue on dairy farms as well as uh, harvesting. We're looking at a program that could give us a legal agricultural workforce that uh, uh, that farmers could feel comfortable and, and, uh, and their employees could be, feel comfortable about. And regulation, obviously, uh, the regulation from a tax perspective as well, but all the environmental regulations, the, the, the Food Safety Act has some real concerns you heard today. So uh, all those things, reducing tax the death packs, all those sorts of things. Management of forests to reduce the risk of wildfires. That was one of the issues brought up by reporters with Purdue. This is a lot of momentum over uh, fire funding, uh, but also forest management. And it will allow us to do the things ahead of time, uh, thinning and insect controls and underbrush to help prevent some of the forest fires that we've seen in Northern California, the Northern Rockies, Oregon, and others, uh, to get ahead of those and do the things that will help to prevent the forest fires, the major forest fires in the future. So we're absolutely there. Uh, we, uh, we support that. We support the effort. There's several efforts in the Senate, bipartisan efforts in the Senate side, but we think we'll see a real solution to the fire borrowing that we've had to borrow from other things to for fire suppression in the future. That'll be very helpful. Mr. Secretary, it's been found, initial investigation is that the vineyards in some of those counties where the wildfires were the worst acted as natural fire breaks, and those wildfires could have been much worse. I have growers in Sacramento County that may face regulation that would prevent them from planting any new vineyards. What is your opinion on restricting a farmer's ability on what they can and cannot plant in areas that have historically been used for agriculture? Well, I'm very 
concerned about that. One of my first jobs unelected was planning and zoning. And uh, you've got some tremendous uh, constitutional rights of personal property ownership and then community good. And when those crash together, uh, it's very, uh, very difficult decisions there. I hope that local governments and others, where that's their primary responsibility, would be very respectful of the contribution that agriculture makes, not just in fire prevention, but in feeding the world. And uh, it's uh, it's a really a, a, an atmosphere from the environment, the ecology, all that, that helps our whole environment. And people love to drive by and see those vineyards, you know, the tourism component of that. So I'm not sure what would compel local governments not to allow those kind of things to take place. NAFTA was still on Sonny Purdue's mind when he returned to Washington later in the week after talking to California's farmers in Modesto. He talked to reporters on Wednesday. Gary Crawford of the USDA has more. Several farm groups are expressing concern that the U.S. might pull out of the North American Free Trade Agreement altogether if Mexico and Canada do not meet certain U.S. conditions. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told reporters in Washington Wednesday, our negotiators know how important NAFTA is to U.S. farmers and how damaging pulling out of it would be. I think it would be definitely uh, a difficult situation, certainly from a commodity perspective and in light of low commodity prices now. He said he's disappointed in the lack of progress in NAFTA talk so far, but... I believe that we'll see NAFTA successfully negotiated. There are probably going to be some nervous bumps in the in the meantime. But just in case it's not successful, the U.S. does withdraw from NAFTA. We're talking with administration and with Congress, really, about how we could protect our producers with that safety net based on prices that may respond very negatively to uh, any kind of NAFTA withdrawal. The next round of negotiations begins November 17th in Mexico City. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. California's rural roads rank among the worst in the United States. That's according to a national report. The report finds California the third worst in the nation for the condition of rural roads and that the rate of traffic fatalities on rural roads is the nation's second highest. California Farm Bureau President Paul Wenger called for making transportation system upgrades a priority. He's saying the whole nation depends on rural California for food and farm products. The tax reform plan coming out of Congress makes major changes to the tax code. Pat Wolf, AFBF Senior Director of Congressional Relations, says Farm Bureau is reviewing the plan to ensure the effective tax rate lessens the tax burden for America's farmers and ranchers. Right now, farms pay taxes under the individual tax code, which has rates as high as 39%. There's going to be a new special rate just for businesses that will cap out at 25%. We're studying it now. We don't know if it will be good or bad for farmers in the end because farmers are being asked to give up a lot of deductions that they have for that new rate. Wolf calls it a bold proposal that she expects to move through Congress quickly. The bill would extend provisions critical to agriculture in addition to repealing the estate tax, a reform Farm Bureau has long called for. Now, it doesn't do that right away. That's six years out, but it does double the exemptions starting next year, and that will help a lot of farmers and ranchers. The bill continues the deduction for business interests. That's something that was under attack, and it allows farmers to continue to use cash accounting. This is important because if farmers and ranchers don't have these tools, they could end up with a tax increase. Wolf says tax reform done right means that farmers and ranchers get to keep more 
more of their hard-earned money. The tax reform plan is on a fast track for passage. Wolf says the big question is whether the new tax code will result in lower taxes for farmers and ranchers. The big question of the day is will the end result be a tax cut for farmers and ranchers? Yes, there's a new lower business rate being proposed, but there are a lot of changes to the tax deductions and credits that farmers use. In the end, the bill should only be passed into law if it's a benefit for farmers and ranchers. Chad Smith, Washington. Growing grapes and making and marketing wine add nearly $220 billion to the U.S. economy. That's according to a study from a Vintners Association. The group Wine America says the wine business supports 1.7 million jobs around the nation. And as the leading grape-growing and wine-making state, California sees the highest economic benefit from wine. But the study says there are winery facilities in all 50 states. Alas, we have come across this somber YouTube a free verse poem to which we've added music and effects. A man looks out in his garden. The first hard freeze has come. The flowers all gone now. Nothing left but this lone kohlrabi. Sitting there, blowing in the wind, not knowing what comes next. Oh, that poor little kohlrabi plant, bless its little heart. Now, most of us don't even know what it is, let alone what to do with it. There's a lot of mystery in there. Yeah, some of which we may be able to clear up. We're at the Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market in Washington in the Vegetation Tent here with head vegetator Laura Popilski. And she's got a big job explaining kohlrabi to the folks out here. Laura, you say it's a big-time popular vegetable in Europe and the Mediterranean, but here? Not all too popular. No. You're going to fix that, right? Yes. We are going to fix that. I was afraid of that, Laura. First, uh, describe this thing. It looks like a little turnip, but the enlarged end of it is more round, grows on top of the ground, not under it. And then it has these kind of tendril stems yeah. that come off of it with little leaves as well. And the whole entire plant is edible. Uh, that is, if you know what to do with it. Most of us don't. Now, uh, maybe, you know, Laura, it's the name, the odd name, kohlrabi. It actually means cabbage turnip in German. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything to me. It sounds more like a prize fighter. In this corner, the challenger fighting Kohlrabi! Ooh, it kind of does, so go, Kohlrabi, go! Go away. No, no, go into my kitchen. <laughs> now, you say most people eat the round part of the bulb part of the plant. You can cut it paper thin, use it to dip into things, or for putting into slaws. Uh, but you have a little oven out here. You're making, it says here, kohlrabi chips. How in the world? Cut them very thin with a mandolin, and uh -huh. then put them in the oven uh -huh. for about 20, 25 minutes with a little bit of salt and pepper and garlic powder just to toast them up. Nice and crispy. Now, if you didn't tell people what it was, what would they most likely think it was? I bet they would think that they were potato chips. That close to potato chips? Yeah, you could actually steam and mash up kohlrabi and swap it half and half with your potatoes if you make mashed potatoes. You can also roast kohlrabi and that brings out some of that earthy flavor and gives it a tender texture, which is very nice. Well, it sounds good, Laura, but it's that name. They need a catchy name for this vegetable if they wanted to take off. Any suggestions there? Cabbage ball. 
Yeah, no. Sounds like a name a little kid would call uh, another kid. Cabbage? Be a cabbage ball? I'm stumped. All right, look at the plant. Uh, What does it... Looks um, like it's from space. Space, space, space. They could call it like space cabbage. Space cabbage. I like that. Well, then there can't be much to it. Forget it. I guess we're stuck with kohlrabi. Buy it. Try it. Looks like it's from space. But it tastes out of this world. And we're out of here. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Most of the broccoli grown in the United States comes from coastal areas of California because broccoli thrives in cool weather. Plant researchers want to expand the areas where broccoli can grow by breeding plants that tolerate higher temperatures. The U.S. Department of Agriculture scientists in South Carolina say they've identified genetic markers that can help broccoli resist heat. They're growing trial plantings of heat-tolerant broccoli in the southeastern United States. The Sacramento Harvest Festival is coming to town, coming to Cal Expo next weekend, November 17th through the 19th, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It'll be at Cal Expo. Lots of vendors there, hundreds of artisans from across the country, including one with a very special product. They live up in Fiddletown, east of Plymouth in Amador County, and they make and market a Bloody Mary mix. It's called Smokin' Mary smoked Bloody Mary mix. And what makes this one different? Let's find out. Lori Nadu runs the operation there with Mark. And and Lori, tell us about uh, your farm background. First of all, uh, it's kind of interesting how you got into uh, working with tomatoes. Absolutely. Um, actually, I, I grew up on a dairy in uh, Petaluma. And it's a generational dairy that's still alive and running. And um, my mom always had the biggest and best gardens. I swear, if I look back and try and remember now, it, I, I would guess almost an acre. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was, she always had a big garden. It wasn't an acre, but um, she always had, and her tomatoes were always the best. It didn't matter, even when she was 80 and still growing her tomatoes, her tomatoes just were the best. So I kind of always have had a love for gardening just because of being brought up like that. And uh, it's it's definitely carried on with all of us. Do you remember what variety of tomato that was? Oh, God, no. No, there were so many. <laughs> I mean, there was never one variety of tomato. Even now, we, uh, we use a, a multiple variety tomato in our mix. But Petaluma isn't the full story because you went to Utah afterwards, and all of a sudden somebody gave you more tomatoes than they knew what to do with. Yes, actually, um, yeah, I... My husband and I, we met in Utah, and uh, we lived in Park City, and I had some friends uh, that had a relative with some big production greenhouses in uh, southern Utah, and they needed help getting rid of them, so we brought them to the farmer's markets, and we had tomatoes before anybody else did, and once uh, everybody started coming on, we had a surplus of tomatoes. I mean, we had so many tomatoes you could never even imagine how many we had it was that many and um we didn't know what to do with them Uh, outside of canning you know spaghetti sauce and salsas and all those things um but it was definitely an adventure that started there well it sounds like there was some drinking involved if you went from making ketchup and salsas to a bloody mary mix yes yes well of course there was we always uh we lived in a community where we had a lot of folks that like to imbibe and i was 
asking one of the neighbors that had popped over, I said, what in the world am I going to do with all these tomatoes? I had them in all of my neighbor's freezers because I had no room for them. And he said, well, why don't you make a Bloody Mary mix? And I said, well, because I never thought of it because it really wasn't something that I would drink on a regular basis. So I, why would I have thought of it? So from that point, I got on Google and I looked up a recipe to make Bloody Marys and there were four ingredients. And from that point, I opened up my spice cabinet and started throwing in a whole bunch of different things to get it right. Well, then that led to, I said, well, hey, maybe I should smoke these tomatoes because I did that with my salsa and I really like the flavor. And that's how, you know, five years later, 16 revisions later, Smoke and Mary went to market because it had gone from four ingredients to 16 main ingredients. And that's kind of how she was born. Smoking then, part of the key behind Smoke and Mary, Smoked Bloody Mary mix. And what's interesting is your move to Fiddletown, and yet you kept up uh, the the Bloody Mary mix uh, habit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's where um, I finished the product was the last year, or the last year of finishing the product was done here in Fiddletown. And then we took it to, um, we actually have it, made in a co-packing firm in Auburn. So that's where our commercial kitchen is, is in Auburn. So I've made sure that it was close so that I could easily go and be there whenever I need to be. How many tomatoes do you think you go through in a year? Last year. So we're only, we've only been on the market for two years. In the first year, we probably went through 5,000 pounds. This last year, we went through 20,000 pounds. And I would guess next year, probably 50,000 pounds. And all of these tomatoes are from Northern California. They're actually not Northern. They are, um, they're grown, all of our produce is fresh. And the tomatoes are actually grown in the Los Banos and Hollister area. Oh, for the sake and, of argument, we'll call that Northern California. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Central Northern. It's, it's close enough. But it is all local. And even our horseradish, um, our horseradish is made fresh um, in Culver City. And then our lemons and limes that we put in there, that is uh, on the I-5 corridor. I would think the horseradish is not grown in Culver City. I don't think there's any bare land left in Culver City. But I, I, there is horseradish grown in northeastern California, though. Yes, yes. that's that's It's grown in California. And I would guess that that's exactly where it is because it's local and made local for us. And I noticed that at your website, smokeandmary.com, uh, because so many of your products are locally sourced, you even found a uh, locally sourced vodka. Yes. Actually, there's a lot of vodkas that are uh, locally sourced. They're popping up everywhere. Um, I would say in every county now, we've got a vodka company just about, or a distiller. So you've heard of farm to fork. This is farm to bar. Yes, Absolutely. One thing I really enjoy about your website, smokeandmary.com, is all the recipes that you have on there. You want to share one of your recipes with us? Absolutely. I would, let's see, we've got 30, 36 of them now. My husband's a, a gourmet cook, so he puts it in all kinds of dishes. Um, I really like the upside down pizza pot pie, and it's super simple. You take a, a soup dish 
and you line it with cheese and it has to be sliced cheese. Line it with cheese and then you put whatever toppings you want inside that bowl and then you pour the mix over the top. You put a pizza crust or pizza pie, whatever you want as your crust, put that on top. Bake it in the oven and when it's golden brown, you take it out and you let it sit for about five minutes. Put a dinner plate over the top flip it upside down and all the cheese just melts all over all the toppings in the sauce. And it is the most fantastic treat. I absolutely love that dish. And what temperature is the oven at? Oh boy, I would guess 350. It's it's, it's on the website because, you know, we've got all kinds of different little, the measurements for the sauce, but it, it is literally that easy to make. All right. It's Smokin' Mary's Smoked Bloody Mary Mix and... Lori, you're going to be at the Harvest Festival, right? You bet I am. The Sacramento Harvest Festival coming to Cal Expo November 17th through the 19th, where you can find hundreds of artisans displaying their wares, including Lori Nadu of Smokin' Mary's Smoked Bloody Mary Mix. Lori, a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you so much, Fred. You have a wonderful, t- wonderful day. And yes, definitely come see me at the Harvest Festivals. I'll be wearing my usual polka dot dress. So I'm not, not too easy to miss <laughs> and very easy to find. All right. Just follow the crowd. Yes. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com.